This podcast is brought to you by TechStreet, your choice for smart standards management. Hi, everybody. I'm Roy Firestone, and welcome to a brand new program I think you're going to find fascinating and inspiring. It's ASME's new podcast called Unconventional Engineering. It's a look at the people, the ideas, the passion, the stories that come from the love of math, science, and mechanical engineering. And joining me with his expertise in that world and issues that impact it is my friend and co-host, ASME's Executive Director and CEO, Tom Costabile. Hey, Tom, good to see you. Roy, how are you? It's good to see you. It's uh, good to be here with you today. And I must say, Roy, it's uh, it's truly an honor for me uh, uh, and genuinely a pleasure to join you uh, as, let me call you my new partner in crime, as, uh, as we develop this ASME podcast. Again, all I can say is thanks a lot. I'm really looking forward to it. I know we've got a great speaker. Thanks, Tom. Our first broadcast has an amazing story to share, and I, I think it's going to surprise and uplift you, too. Ian Davis is 47 years old. He was born and raised in Medford, Oregon, and you might understand it if he was angry and bitter, but he's not. Four years ago, Ian was diagnosed with a virulent form of blood cancer, multiple myeloma. He's undergone chemotherapy and transplants. And he tried to get back to work, but then at work, he suffered a freak injury to his left hand. And because of a bone infection related to the cancer, doctors told Ian they had to amputate his fingers one at a time, covering several weeks. Well, instead of wallowing in self-pity, he decided he would invent the first ever robotic hand that didn't use plug-in electricity. It took him months of long hours, trials, failures, incremental progress, but Ian Davis did it, defying the sickness and the nausea and the weakness from treatment and the hardship he endured, he engineered this amazing robotic hand that uses a small battery but allows Ian complete control of his hand, which is actually, by the way, an upgrade in terms of speed and versatility to an industrial prosthetic hand. And what's more, Ian has recorded his progress on creating that robotic hand, posted it on YouTube, Suddenly, he has over 400,000 subscribers. Welcome to Unconventional Engineering, Ian Davis. Thanks, Roy. It's great to be here. Well, this is an incredible story. Uh, we, when, you, when you hear this story, I've, I read this to, to so many people last night, and they said, God, how does a guy go on? Why isn't he rolled up in a ball in a corner somewhere complaining about life? That's my first question. Why didn't you cave? Why didn't you give in with all the stuff that happened to you? Well, you know, it, it really was never a thought. You know, I've been self-employed for 25 years. And, you know, with that, it's always just a drive to just keep doing more and more. And, you know, I actually saw it as an opportunity to be able to help other people. When I lost my hand, you know, it was actually my second jaunt into the prosthetics world. And I had seen that in the 20 years or so since the last time I'd been there, that not a whole bunch has really changed. Didn't you tell me that up until you really, up in recent years, they were still doing hooks and wooden legs in prosthetics in a lot of areas, right? They still do the bifurcated hook. For a total disarticulation transradial or at the wrist, you know, the, the pinnacle is a, a myoelectric device, you know, that is powered off of the, the muscle movement. It picks up the the electromagnetic field of that, and then that's what generates the motion for the for the prosthetic. But for a partial hand, you know, of course, they hide the motors for the for the devices in the palm. Well, I still have a palm, so there's no place to put the motors. So then they put them in the fingers, 
which makes the device, you know, slow and and really kind of cumbersome in order to, to use in a daily life. And you used a small battery, like a miniature battery to power it, is that right? You'd use like a cell phone battery, a 3.7-volt LiPo, like 800 milliamp hour. You were telling me a story about the, in the airport, if the battery dies and you got your orange chicken from the restaurant, what happens? Oh, my gosh, yes. You know, I'm running from gate to gate in the Salt Lake City airport, and, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, you know, the batteries die on my hand, and it opens up, and, you know, there's my orange chicken on the floor. I want to talk about being autodidactic, which is basically self-taught. Even as a kid, your, your parents didn't buy you toys. They bought you tools. And you self-taught yourself almost everything. It wasn't just erector sets. It was uh, balsa wood airplanes. And even when you had the tragic news that you had cancer, you sat in the car. Instead of weeping, you started looking up everything about myeloma and cancer blood cancer. You, you, you were undaunted, man. You, you just wanted to learn everything you could possibly learn about cancer. Very matter of fact, I'm not saying there was no emotion, but you decided you're just going to learn it like you did with all the other things growing up. You're going to learn about it and re respond to it, right? Oh, absolutely. Like with my meeting with the physician, you know, it was, well, you, you know, he met with me and he's like, well, I have the results of your blood test. You have an unregulated production of uh, monoclonal cells within your plasma. I said, well, that sounds a lot like cancer. He's like, well, I can't talk to you about that, but you have a meeting with an oncologist in a month. And I was like, well, I know what that word means too. So why don't we talk about that? You know, and at the time he's like, well, well, no, I, you know, not in my field. I can't really talk to you about that. So, you know, I had him print out everything about, uh, you know, my symptomology, my morphology, and I, I sat in the parking lot and figured out, you know, what stage I was, you know, what, what type and scale that I was dealing with, because, you know, it is very matter of fact, you know, if, if you have, if you have terminal blood cancer, you have terminal blood cancer. So, you know, do you, do you have the Honda version of it? Do you have the Porsche version of it? You, you know, or, or the Toyota version of it, you know? Unfortunately, I was dealing with the Porsche version. So, you know, and subsequently, I mean, you know, that was about uh, November of 17. And, you know, for most of 18, I was living in hospital doing uh, heavy chemo and stem cell transplants. I'm going to go to Tom now because Tom, he has a long career in knowing all the technical things and mechanisms and stuff. And it's way above my pay grade. But Tom, I know you have some questions from a technical standpoint. Roy, thank you. And Ian, again, my thanks. I've been anxious to have this conversation with you. I've been admiring from a distance the uh, just the technology that you've used. Uh, the functionality of your prosthetic hand is amazing. Uh, I, I don't know how else to say that. Share a little bit more about how you got to the current design. You know, as a scientist, as an engineer, uh, I understand the mechanics. I'm always intrigued about what drove you to the current design. This version is, is about my sixth daily driver running version. It's the second one that I, that I went to metal. All of the previous ones, just out of expediency, I had 3D printed out, out of a resin machine or off of a FFF machine. But I ran into limitations with that just because, you know, plastic is fantastic, but steel is real. 
the one prior to the metal ones, you know, I'd have to reprint fingers every other week due to material failure, UV exposure, just lateral important fractures. And that's where I came up with the aluminum fingers just out of durability and longevity. You know, I've been using this one as my daily for about a year and I haven't really replaced any parts. You actually used a 3D printer for your prosthetic hand at early on, I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, and I prototyped, you know, some of the parts for for this one or, or my current new one off of 3D printing. How long did it take you to get to where you were really satisfied with the speed and the, the versatility of, of the current model? So I moved on to this one uh, about six months after my amputation. And, you know, I ran with this one for, for again, about six months. And then mm. while using this, I learned everything that I liked and disliked from the design and then moved on to this one, which has, you know, increased grip force from uh, the first one, uh, same speed, but I ran with this for about eight months, you know, and, but this is where I ran into the issues of, you know, the fingers are all resin printed uh, mm -hmm. out of tough, tough resin. Uh, it's all SLA. And, you know, just by having it out in the sun or welding with it or, or whatnot, the UV would cause the, the resin to degrade and become brittle. So then from there, you know, I took, so this one, I increased the geometry for better grip strength and maneuverability. And then with, with my current, uh, I added the function of splay, which when I was initially figuring out, I, I didn't know if it was going to be a super useful attribute or if it was just going to be more of a Zuzu. But I tell you, you when you say splay, you mean move, you can move your fingers side to side, open and close, right? Like right there. Yeah. You couldn't do that before? Oh, no, no. The, these fingers are, are rigidly mounted. Mm, you know, wow. they, they articulate, but they, there's nothing laterally. Mm. So in order to do that, I, I had to come up with a gimbal that would isolate the two axes through the center point of the wrist. You know, because everything has to rotate through the physical center. Your design approach, type of software you're using. What uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think led to the you know just the? I was amazed to see the display of the hand, and then the idea of uh, putting a gimbal into that particular product. Uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, Thank you. Tell tell us a little bit about you know your time uh, with the design of it as opposed to the actual construction of, of the hand. So I draw an AutoCAD of PDSU 2013. Because okay. it's the it's the last version that isn't subscription based, and I've pretty well stuck with that. I run it through uh, Inventor for my FEA, but most everything is just straight through uh, AutoCAD Mechanical. Because then I can directly out you know export it to my machines to cut the parts out. Have you given any uh, consideration or any thought to uh, covering of the prosthetic device? Uh, if you look at you look at the reason I ask that question is I've had many conversations with individuals that are doing. Uh, 3D printing for uh, replacement limbs for uh, mostly the military. So I lost an arm. How do I have something that's more decorative as opposed to functional like yours? And the uh, conversation quickly goes into, well, I'd rather have the decorative piece because the, uh, the functional piece is hard to, to, to make it look like a hand or make it look like an arm. Uh, tell us, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on that. Well, I look at it as more of um, 
you know, definitely for, for my device, you have to own it. You know, it is, but in the same, you know, when, when you lose, when you lose an upper limb, you know, a portion of your hand or, or say an arm, it's not like losing a leg where, you know, you have long pants and, and you could just be a guy walking with a limb. You know, if, if you lose a hand, you know, it's right there in front of everybody to see, you know, you've lost a hand. So, you know, and as far as uh, covering it with like, say a silicon glove or, or, you know, something like a life skin, uh, for, for me, that's not really something that I would be going down that road just because, mm -hmm. I mean, for, for a mechanical point of view, you know, any force that it takes to deform that glove is taking away from your grip force. Right. Now on, right. on the, on the current prototype one, I am, uh, casting and overmolding silicone for the fingerprints to enforce my, to increase my coefficient of friction. Mm -hmm. So I have fingerprints and grip. Uh, tell me, would, would you, on the next version of this, um, the, uh, the, with the improvements of electronics today, especially uh, with the microchips and what have you, do you see any other type of an embedded device or any other way that you'd be able to pick up uh, different signals or are you satisfied with the, what you have right now? So the way that I'm setting this one up, uh, it, it's got a gyro that is a gyro accelerometer, six degree freedom that I'm using with in combination of capacitive touch buttons. So you touch okay. a capacitive touch button, that'll get you into the menu mode, and then, or that'll get you into grip mode. And then from there, you move your hand whatever direction in combination to lock the fingers. And then you hit execute, the stepper motors move, you close the hand down, and then that moves it on to back to the home mode. Uh, which I'm incorporating a 64 by 128 OLED display so you can actually see where you are within the menu system. Okay, cool. I love it. I love it. And I might just have to have one of these just to play with. I mean, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, did a pre-interview with you, Ian. I, I, there, was a, there was a line that, that, that I was struck with. You said, I was trying to decide what I was. I thought that was an interesting way. I don't know what you quite meant by that, but this was after all the bad news, you decided you needed to define what you were. I, I wonder if you can expand on that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, you know, I've been self-employed as, you know, I, I do machine work, uh, welding, fabrication, forming, you know, that had, the shop had been my identity for, you know, 25, 26 years. And now that that wasn't going to be my professional capacity in as much, you know, doing the structural steel, the ornamental iron, uh, just being a bracket shop, you know, being that I just lost my hand, what did that really mean for me in the future? You know, was I going to still be able to be a maker? Was, was that, was that part of my life just completely gone now? You know, should I be having an auction and, and getting rid of all my stuff or, or should I try to make, you know, should I, you know, adapt and overcome and, and move forward on to, you know, trying to do something with my bonus time. Hey, I, I just think this is an incredible, you're an incredible person, Ian. I have great admiration for you, my friend, Tom, you know, uh, it, it this is the first of our many shows that we're going to do together. Thank you again for your expertise. Uh, I just think this is an amazing, amazing story. And I want to thank both of you for joining us on our program. Well, Roy, my thanks to both of you guys. I've enjoyed this. Uh, Ian, I'm sure uh, there'll be a lot more to come of this. And 
uh, let's see uh, how we could put our hands together, so to speak. Well, thank you, Tom and Roy. It's been a great experience. Stay well. All right. Thank you. Well, that does it for our first episode of ASME's Unconventional Engineering. Special thanks to my co-host, ASME Executive Director and CEO, Tom Costabile. And thanks all to all of you for uh, listening to, to our show. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you think. And we love for your suggestions to come through, potential future topics, maybe guests. So reach out to anyone on the Unconventional Engineering Production Team or send your email directly to media at asme.org become an ASME member, please log on to asme.org or to donate to the ASME Foundation, go to asmefoundation.org. For ASME, I'm Roy Firestone and have a great day, everybody.